Warning! Warning! Today's episode contains spoilers. So if you have not seen the movie or TV show that we are talking about, we highly recommend that you watch it first, then listen to this episode. Thank you. What kind of a sick school is this? Things are afoot at the Circle K. You're gonna need a bigger boat. Surely you can't be serious. I am serious, and don't call me Shirley. You got spunk. I hate spunk. Danger, Will Robinson. Danger. Oh, righty then. How you doing? Back off, man. I'm a scientist. Don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. Say hello to my little friend. I love to celebrate from in the morning. What are you people? On dope? Stop whining. I got a crap on deck that can choke a donkey. Who is your daddy? I'm sorry, but all questions must be submitted in writing. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Can I do that? I'll be back. A dynamite! Show me the money! Don't! Up your nose when you have the phone. A what? I'm sailing! I'm sailing! You want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it. Pull it down. Love means never having to say you're sorry. Here's looking at you, kid. We got no food. We got no jobs. Our pets' heads are falling off. Go to the coast. We get together. Have a few laughs. Hear that, Elizabeth? I'm coming to join you, honey. I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV. I love it when a plan comes together. What we do is if we need that extra push over the cliff, you know what we do? Put it up to 11. 11, exactly. One louder. Why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder? These go to 11. We're on a mission from God. Hello and welcome to Then Is Now Podcast, the show in which we try to bring you up to speed on all the cool stuff that you may have missed out on. I am your host, Rigor. When Joe Lemieux was here last, we covered the 1953 classic War of the Worlds. Continuing our classic sci-fi films sub-series here on That Is Now, Joe once again joins me and we're going to discuss Invaders from Mars, also from 1953. Like War of the Worlds, this picture definitely falls under the category of required viewing, something you should know about and have seen. Once casually dismissed as just one among many low-budget science fiction films of the 1950s, Invaders from Mars now enjoys a large cult following, and rightfully so, and is regarded by some psychologists and social historians as an indicator of the deeper apprehensions of its day, flying saucers, the Cold War, and most especially, the fear of communist infiltration. We've got a lot of fun things coming up here on Then Is Now, so don't forget to give us a great review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you download your podcasts from. If you want to chime in on the discussions, visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash thenisnowpodcast. You can also send us your thoughts on this episode and previous ones, or things you'd like us to cover in future episodes, by emailing us at thenisnow42 at gmail.com. And don't forget to visit our website, havenpodcasts.com, for more fun stuff and our sister show, The East Meets the West, in which we discuss spaghetti westerns and Shaw Brothers films. So if you haven't seen the original 1953 film, Invaders from Mars, we highly advise that you watch it and then come back and listen to the show. Class is in session. 
have a bad feeling about this. How could I possibly be expected to handle school on a day like this? Hey, you in my class? I am today. I think you should consider transferring to shock class. Woo -woo! Now, now, very few students are severely injured in shock class. Bueller. When you were in school. Bueller. Did you ever cut class? Bueller. Yeah, I guess I did. Sure, most kids cut classes. Good, sign this. Um, he's sick. I get so lonely when I hear that third attendance bell ring and all my kids are not here. Seven years of college down the drain. Fat, drunk, and stupid is no way to go through life, so. You lack discipline. As long as I'm here, there will be no grades or gold stars or demerits. We're gonna have recess all the time. Woo! Go, play and have fun now. Okay, folks, today I am once again joined by filmmaker Joe Lemieux. How you doing today, Joe? I'm fantastic. How are you? I'm doing well, doing well. So the film we're going to cover is 1953's Invaders from Mars, an incredible tale of a young boy who witnesses a UFO landing and gets caught up in an invasion of Earth. From Mars. He saw them land from outer space. He saw them capture innocent people only to destroy. <laughs> Father turned against son. People changed into strange, weird animals. A general of the army becomes a saboteur. Trusted police turned into arsonists. The boy's parents changed into killers. But nobody's getting anywhere out there. Nobody can locate anything. Anybody. The Martians. We've got to stop the... Invaders from Mars. Capturing humans at will for their own sinister purposes, turning them into diabolical instruments of destruction. <laughs> Invaders from Mars, weird, fantastic beings of a superintelligence, ruling a race of synthetic humans and pitting them against mankind's dream to conquer the universe. Come on, step on it. Search every tunnel. We gotta find Ronaldo and the kid. When the colonel gives a signal, get back here on the double! Late one night, youngster David McLean is awakened by his alarm clock so that he can do some stargazing. From his bedroom window, he sees a large flying saucer descend and disappear into the sandpit area behind his home. After rushing to tell his parents, his scientist father goes to investigate David's claim. When his father returns much later in the morning, David notices an unusual red puncture along the hairline on the back of his father's neck in the shape of an X. The father is now behaving in a cold and hostile manner. David soon begins to realize that something is very wrong. 
He notices certain townsfolk are acting in exactly the same way. Through his telescope, David sees child neighbor Kathy Wilson suddenly disappear underground while walking in the sandpit. David flees to the police station for help and is eventually placed under the protection of health department physician Dr. Pat Blake, who slowly begins to believe his crazy story. With the help of local astronomer Dr. Stuart Kelston and Dr. Blake, David soon realizes the flying saucer is likely the vanguard of an invasion from the planet Mars, now in close orbital proximity to Earth. Dr. Kelston contacts the U.S. Army and convinces them to immediately investigate. An important government rocket research plant is located nearby. In short order, the Pentagon assembles troops and tanks under the command of Colonel Fielding. An alien sabotage plot at the plant is soon uncovered, leading back to the sandpit, and the Army surrounds the saucer landing site. Standing well away from the Army search, Dr. Blake and young David are suddenly sucked underground. They're captured by two tall, slit-eyed green humanoids and taken via tunnels to the flying saucer. Army troops locate and blow open an entrance to the tunnels, and Colonel Fielding and a small detachment make their way to the saucer entrance. Inside, they confront the Martian mastermind. It has a giant green head with a humanoid face atop a small, green, partial torso with several green-armed tentacles and is encased in a transparent sphere. The Martian is served by the tall, green, silent, synthetic mutants. Under their master's mental commands, the mute humanoids have implanted mind-control crystals at the base of the skull of their kidnapped victims, forcing them to attempt sabotage at an atomic rocket project being built at a military plant near the town. If they are caught, the mind-control devices explode, causing a fatal cerebral hemorrhage. The troops and Colonel Fielding, with Dr. Blake and David in tow, open fire on the pursuing mutants as their group escapes the saucer. After a short running battle in the tunnels, they return to the surface. Orders are given for everyone to quickly leave the area. Fielding's troops have planted timed explosive charges aboard the saucer. David runs downhill away from the sandpit, and artillery opens fire on the sandpit as the charge's ticking timer slowly approaches zero. Following the large explosion, David suddenly... David is suddenly back in his bed during a thunder and lightning storm. He runs into his parents' bedroom confused and frightened. They reassure him that he was just having a bad dream, telling him to go back to sleep. Having returned to his bed, more wind and loud thunder is heard. David climbs out of bed again, goes to his window, and witnesses the very same flying saucer in his nightmare slowly descending into the sandpit, to which he responds, Gee whiz! Okay, Joe, so now when was the first time, or do you recall the first time that you saw Invaders from Mars? Um, well, the thing is, I, I saw the Toby Hooper one, and, and I thought that was the original until I realized that there was another one. Um, oh, interesting. Nothing against Toby Hooper or Sam Winston who did the effects of the, of the remake, but... Um, I prefer the original better. It's far more scarier. Oh, same here, same here. This is one of those movies I remember as a kid, my father telling me how good it was. And I I think it was like late one night, it happened to be on TV, and he let me stay up and watch it with him. So, you know, even as a kid, I was blown away by it, and it's always been one of my favorite classic sci-fi films. And it's interesting, too, because it's obvious when you watch it, Invaders from Mars... It came at the beginning of the Cold War and was followed by a slew of sci-fi movies that had similar Cold War subtexts. And there are a lot of subtexts in this movie, which we'll get into later as we unpack the film here. Yeah, the... Um, okay, so we've got our cast... Oh, go ahead, sorry. No, I was just saying that they were trying to beat uh, War of the Worlds in the first 
colored sci-fi movie, so they rushed it in produ- into production. That's right. That's right. That's why both movies were the same year, 1953. Okay, let's get into our cast and crew here. I, I First off, I just want to say I think everyone here gave a solid performance. I think they were all very, very good. And, and as, I, you know, as I said before, we'll get into more details as we go. So we've got our director, William Cameron Menzies. He was a well-known art director and production designer. Not well-known for directing, although he did make H.G. Wells' Things to Come in 1936. And this movie, Invaders from Mars, it's got tons of visual style. I guess a lot of times he had trouble getting good performances out of his actors and needed a co-director to help with that. But again, I thought the cast gave solid performances here, especially um, George and Mary, the mother of Yeah, I know. Yeah, they're, they're quite believable. You know, like the mom and dad and, and very loving at first and then... And... Later on, when they've taken over, you can see the heartbreak in the kid's eyes, <laughs> or face at least. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and just their um, turn when they when they changed or were, were taken over was really good. Okay, the movie was written by Richard Blake. It was, well, it was actually, it was developed, yeah, it was developed from a scenario by Richard Blake and based on a story treatment by John Tucker Battle. So I guess John Tucker Battle wrote the script, um, and he was inspired by a dream that he recount, that was recounted to him by his wife. And he only had uh, he had nine credits, and he died in 1954. So not not a lot on the writers here. And then in our cast, we've got Jimmy Hunt, who plays David McLean. He was known for a couple of different things, not a lot, but a movie called Pitfall in 1948. Of course, this one and Sorry Wrong Number in 1948. But he did come back to play the police chief in the '86 uh, remake. Then we've got Arthur Franz as Dr. Stuart Kelston. Um, I think of all the cast, he's the most prolific. He was in a handful of movies before this. He did tons of TV after this, but he was known for one of one of my favorite B movies, um, Monster on the Campus, where he prof- played Professor Donald Blake. Oh, yeah, I love that movie. Yeah, that was from 1958. Uh, by the way, Donald Blake was Thor's uh, secret identity in the comic books in the Marvel comics. So I wonder if they took that from this movie, from Monster on the Campus. Maybe. He was also in The Cane Mutiny, and he was in uh, Abbott and Costello Meet the Invisible Man, and a movie called Flight to Mars. So he's he's been in quite a few genre films, or at least a handful of them. And we've got Helena Carter as Dr. Pat- Patricia Blake, Pat Blake. And this was uh, one of the first times in her career that she played something other than the romantic interest for the male lead. And then after this movie, she, of course, retired. So... <laughs> <laughs> Um, I guess uh, maybe it was that, maybe it was that movie Farrah. that did it. What? Maybe it was that movie that did right? it. Right? Yeah, it was too much for her. Yeah, yeah, too much for her. <laughs> <laughs> then we've got Leif Erikson. No, not the guy who discovered Canada, but an actor named Leif Erikson who played the father, George McLean. And he was in On the Waterfront with Marlon Brando. And he also did a ton of TV shows all the way up to the $6 million man. He did like the High Chaparral, The Rifleman, Rawhide, Gunsmoke, Daniel Boone, and The Mod Squad, as well as The Magician with Bill Bixby. Then we've got uh, Hilary Brooke, who played uh, Mother Mary McLean. She was uncredited. I thought this was interesting in quite a few movies in the 1940s. Um, every time you look at her on IMDb, it's uncredited, uncredited, uncredited. But she was listed as being in Abbott and Costello Meet Captain Kidd, and she did have quite a few TV appearances throughout the 1950s. 
Then we've got Morris Ankrum, who played Colonel Fielding. He was in another couple classics that we'll probably cover here on the show, Rocketship XM and Earth versus the Flying Saucers. And his thing was, he was a well-known character actor who portrayed authority figures like senators, scientists, and especially military men. I thought he was pretty good in this movie here. And really, I have to say, the one that stood out to me the most was the, I, it was a brief role, was Barbara Billingsley as Kelston's secretary. Yes, leave it to Beaver's mom, as well as the lady who spoke <laughs> jive on airplane. <laughs> So it was nice to see her. This must have been a really early role for her. Yeah, I always liked her. Yeah, yeah, she was good. So, and then uh, now we we get to the music of the film, the score, which is really good. Uh, it's it's well, first of all, let's describe it to the audience. It's got this um, ethereal, rhythmically wavering tone, tonal composition, and it's also sung in unison by a choir, and it uses both a sound effect and as the scenic score associated with the Martians. It's very creepy, and um, they don't really know. There's no credit for who did it. Supposedly, it's credited to a guy named Raul Krauschar, but then there's another place that says that it was a guy named Mort Glickman. Do you know anything about that? Uh, I just saw that one credit, that's all. Um, it, It almost kind of reminded me of, like, early... Tangerine Dream or like Carpenterish, I guess, kind of like pre 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 John Carpenter. Right, like they don't use the theremin like in Forbidden Planet. This is it's it's the voices of the choir making this this weird kind of sound that I I just find it creepy, especially like every time the sandpit would open up to suck somebody in, you heard that music. They, they must have done the sandpit thing using a. Lapping, uh, like overlapping uh, photography, almost, almost like uh, stop motion, maybe. I think so. They also did a lot in reverse. Yeah. From what I understand in my research here, they. Um, it was probably just on a tabletop of the hound and then they did display backwards. Right, right. Yeah, they did a lot of interesting tricks in this movie. This was a low budget independent film. It wasn't made by one of the studios. Yeah, it's, uh, isn't Republic it was, um, let's see. It was, no, it was shot on the RKO lot. I think, or maybe it was, I'm sorry, you're right. It was uh, Republic Pictures. It was shot um, at their, on their lot in the conventional, they did it in uh, pre-cinemascope aspect ratio, which is 1.37 to 1. So they were able to recycle shots by flipping the negative left to right or right to left in an optical printer. And they used something called full aperture. So it, it made, it made things symmetrical, I guess. So that when you saw the effects, you didn't really realize you were looking at an effect, if that makes oh, sense. Wow. And then they did a lot of reverse shots. Like if you, there was a car, one of the car chase where the mother and father, after they sabotage the plant and they're being chased by the cops, you see them turning left and then you see them turning right. But it was actually the same shot of them turning left that they just reversed. So you could tell the background is, is the same, but reversed. Yeah. The, the technical is amazing. Oh Yeah. Yeah, and it was a different kind of color. It's actually super cinecolor, but before I get into that, they used this full aperture procedure on shooting the sandpit scenes, so when people were falling down or falling up, without resorting to an optical printer stepping backwards. So this was done by the expedient shooting of the falling down scenes conventionally, but then shooting the falling up scenes with the camera upside down, 
rotated about the optical axis of the lens and then reversing that shot for the end to end during negative assembly so it made the sand appear to move upwards if wow. if that makes sense I, I was doing research on this and it was a lot of stuff that was kind of going over my head <laughs> or something it's a low budget it looks amazing oh yeah you wait now where did you watch it like on was uh, it on a streaming it service on, or do you have the dvd YouTube. I watch on YouTube at home, and then I watch it here on YouTube at uh, my work. Okay, yeah, I watched it on Tubi, so it was it wasn't a great print of the film, but it was it was it was so good to begin with that it was hard to not look good. You know, the colors were still rich, and all that. And this the super cinecolor apparently required an optical printer to extract the separations, and this was ne necessary for its three color process because they had. The red cyan printer and the green magenta printer printed on the opposite sides of the film, with a blue, which a blue and yellow printer printed over one of the sides. So one side would have two colors and the other side would have one color. Unlike Technicolor, which is a three-strip process where all the colors are printed on one side of the film stock. So I thought this was an interesting effect to, to get the colors look so rich. Yeah, it it kind of remind me of the colored. Uh films in uh done by paul pressburger like like the red shoes right colonel blimp uh was very vivid almost like 3d and that's funny that you said that because there was rumors people thought this movie was in 3d at some point and it was not in 3d but it looks like it because of the way they they filmed yeah. it especially with with the uh the end credit title or says the end and it looked like it would would be in 3d right right <laughs> and yeah and so that the shot of the hill with the fence on it i mean first of all that's very iconic when you see that it's it's so recognizable and i i didn't really notice until this time around because they they pointed it out that the fence actually didn't go into the ground at first it was only after the ship landed that the end of the fence was kind of sucked into the ground as well oh. But they, they did that, and this was interesting because I don't, I'm not sure, I'm going to read this here because I'm not sure if, if I understand it 100%. The shot of the hill with the fence that goes down into the sand pit, which, by the way, we never actually do get a, a good look at the sand pit. It was usually a static shot when they showed it. But then they used reversed force perspective. where So it, this, that's one of those things where a deep set is purposely made to appear shallow. So it looks like a matte painting. You're watching it and you're thinking it's a matte painting, but then the characters walk up the trail falling yeah, along the fence. That kind of blew me away because at first I thought it was a matte painting. I'm like, oh, and there he goes. Yeah, exactly. And I think they did that in lieu of doing actual 3D. They did that just to make get uh, sort of, I don't know, simulate that experience. But you had a lot of other interesting uh, effects here. Of course, the bug-eyed Martian faces were achieved with, they just had plastic eye-nose-mouth combo mask that was worn like sunglasses. And the the bubbled-up effects in the tunnels, it was created at first, they used inflatable balloons that were pinned to the tunnel <laughs> walls, but when they did the first test results, it looked like balloons stuck to the walls. So what they ended up using were latex condoms. Yeah, 3,000 of them. <laughs> Like, yeah, where yeah. do you get 3,000 condoms? And that seemed to be more convincing, but you... <laughs> I'm no kidding. <laughs> Only in L.A. Whoever, whoever owned that company was doing well. They, uh, and when the Martians run by them, you can kind of see them move, too. It's really funny. And even the head machine was kind of creepy. Oh, that was so creepy. 
that was it's just like a head in a jug and he doesn't talk or turn or anything he just moves his eyes around and i guess he's mentally yeah, talking the, to the, the tentacles. to his mutants yeah i thought it was interesting too that they they refer to them as mutants not mutants <laughs> <laughs> yeah again it's early in the 50s but the 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 leave of the martians there almost kind of remind me of that character on uh, the flintstones there kazoo kazoo yeah yeah <laughs> Did you know his, his off-topic, did you know Kazoo was voiced by Harvey Corman? No, I did not know that. Yeah. No, I can never get that voice <laughs> out of my mind. Thanks. I know, I know. When you think about it, you're like, oh my God, that's Harvey Corman. <laughs> Everyone thinks because you're a zombie, you don't know good coffee. Well, they're wrong. We have very active lifestyles. It's not all wandering the countryside aimlessly or scaring passing motorists. And we all love a good cup of joe. And there's only one brew that gets my seal of approval. Deadly Grounds Coffee is my guilty pleasure. Bold, robust, delicious. It's coffee that can wake the dead. <laughs> With over a dozen different roasts and flavors, Deadly Grounds can satisfy the most finicky of coffee addicts. The aroma is so intoxicating. It brings all of my neighbors out of the woodwork. Deadly Grounds Coffee. Coffee to die for and zombie approved. It's good to get a little deadly. Use the front door! Oh, they're so disgusting. Greetings, this is Mr. Lobo. Are you a sinsomniac? Do you stay up late and watch what normal people call bad movies till dawn? Black and white low-budget pot boilers, box office bombs, West German talking car movies, rock bands versus monster movies, broken down school films, midget zombie and midget spy flicks, guys in gorilla suit movies, even old TV commercials, inappropriate cartoons, drive-in snack bar ads, and worse? <clears throat> well, we like to say they're not bad movies, just misunderstood. Stay up late with Miss Mittens, your host, Mr. Lobo, and a revolving door of special guests, fellow horror movie hosts, robot monsters, and lovely real seven girls for a late night TV slumber party that we call Cinema Insomnia. You can watch us on channel OSI 74 for Roku. We even have some episodes on Amazon and Alpha Video DVD. You may never get a good night's sleep again. So one thing I always liked about this movie, especially when I was younger, was that when, when David wakes up and he first tells his father, George, about what he saw, the, the father doesn't necessarily poo-poo it right away. And then he stops and thinks, and he's like, well, maybe I better look into it because the, what we're doing at the plant is secret, and I got orders to report anything unusual. So I like that, the fact that he wasn't going to take any chances and just you'd say, oh, you know, you're an idiot making up stories. Yeah, and, and I like how... I also liked how he was looking through the uh, the telescope with his with his son, like he was like a kid himself. Right, right, yeah. And he was a scientist to begin with, so the son kind of followed in the same footsteps. It was like the typical dad's, like, it's like, go to bed now, or you won't be sitting down for a week. Right, exactly. <laughs> and um, I think he was a little annoyed, but he still had like a smirk on his face, and that was cool because of the transformation from when he yeah. he's taken over the contract. Yeah. And that was a creepy scene. And that always bothered me as 
the father just suddenly turns and he was just he was cold and um you know he was kind of stiff he was serious and sinister looking you know all at once and i thought that was some great acting right there yeah the um especially when you thought it was suspicious when you notice the uh, slipper was missing right and then of course david notices the x on the back of the dad's neck and when he starts to ask about it the dad backhand backhands him and tells him not to spread stories about what he's seen <laughs> it's like whoa yep 1950s yep <laughs> And I thought it was that was interesting too that the mother comes in and rather than be all upset that he smacked the son, she's just like, "Okay, David, why don't you go outside and I'll make your father some toast?" You know. <laughs> Again, 1950s. Right. Um, right. Yeah, that that lead alien thing with the tentacles. Uh, Bob Burns owns that now. Really. Yep. That's... And it, it actually makes an appearance in the uh, uh, remake. It's in the background there. Oh, interesting. All I remember from the remake was Karen Black like swallowing a frog whole, and I just remember thinking oh, how stupid yeah, that was. That was. <laughs> yeah. It's too bad. She, I really like Karen Black too. <laughs> so David, but I think oh, go ahead. The uh, the ending was altered in the UK in the UK version, right? It was. It was the um, for some reason they they didn't like it. They didn't think it was long enough, so they added eight minutes to it. And they didn't like the ending. Now, we can jump ahead and talk about the ending here. So uh, the soldiers get down there. They rescue Dr. Blake and David, and they set charges to escape. And the, the whole last, the final, you know, quarter of the film is really exciting with the, with them trying to get out in time and the aliens sealing up the, the, the walls with their ray gun and everything. And um, David goes through this weird flashback where basically, like, I, the only way I could describe it was like all the events of the 1950s, the 1950s, I'm sorry, all the events of the past 24 hours just like run through his head, sort of like your life flashing before yeah. your eyes. And I, I think that was padding. Close up too. I, I took that to be padding in the film, just like a lot of the stock footage to me felt just like they the movie wasn't long enough to begin with, so they added all that stuff in. But the British version, they didn't like that. They didn't think, first of all, they didn't think the film was long enough they didn't like the fact that it all turned out to be a dream. So they released it in 1954, but before they did so, they actually shot additional footage to lengthen the observatory scene. And then the, the dream narrative, they changed that completely. So they added like eight minutes and um, they filmed it. And obviously the kid, Jimmy Hunt, who played David, he was older looking. You could tell he was taller and um, there's a scene where he's he's got a sweater vest on and then he doesn't have it on. And uh, Dr. Kelstrom's tie is untied and then it's tied again. So th- that whole scene where they're in the observatory talking about the Martians, it, it's just bizarro. Apparently, I think it's on the 2002 disc you can see the British version. Yeah, it's similar to the ending of uh, Invasion of Body Snatchers, kind of. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's funny because I was thinking of Invasion of the Body Snatchers when we watched this, but um, it, this was a little more upbeat and not everybody was, was turning. It wasn't a complete no-win scenario like Invasion of the Body Snatchers was. I guess uh, I guess this, this movie was an uh, inspiration for Larry Cohen's uh, uh, TV series called The Invaders. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, interesting. I didn't. He said he was always inspired by that movie. 
Oh, that's cool. I love that show, The Invaders, with Roy Thinnis. That's a great show. And and this movie also inspired um, Don Coscarelli, who made Phantasm, to be uh, um, to not only be a filmmaker, but he also had some plot similarities in in it. And also, um, the movie Iron Giant by Brad Bird references this movie as well as a bunch of other uh, cool sci-fi films from the fifties. Yep. Um, and then we got you know you got David, who's trying to tell people what happened. He sees now he sees the neighbor girl Kathy get sucked into the sandpit. He goes over and tells her mother, and of course the mother absolutely doesn't believe her. You know, why are you telling these lies kind of thing? And then Kathy shows up, and she's changed too. And I thought she did a, a, an okay job of portraying, you know, someone who is uh, in con- uh, under the control of the aliens. Yeah, definitely. And it was interesting. That, it was interesting. The, the aliens' agenda here was, I was trying to figure it out because, like, they obviously they took over whoever gets near the sandpit, and... Kathy was the daughter of Dr. Wilson, who was a scientist that worked at the plant. So they definitely, the aliens had an interest in the plant. One thing that I thought was kind of bizarre, though, is when David first tells his his whole story to Dr. Kellstrom, Kellstrom immediately postulates that, well, the, the Martians uh, must have created synthetic humanoids to use as slaves, and they're coming to this planet to take over and because their planet's dying. And he just has all these wild... Theories that how the heck would he know any of that? <laughs> Lucky guess. You know, at least like, right? <laughs> and by and they go after the, the Doctor Wilson's daughter, and she torches the house, which I thought was interesting too, because I guess maybe they wanted to kill Doctor Wilson and stop whatever he was doing at the uh, at the plant. Mm. And what do you think? Yeah, that makes sense. It, it seemed like they're just trying to put it in like some kind of action scene, just. So let's take a put in an action scene. Yeah, yeah, the script is a little disjointed in that respect. Because the, the mother and father go to the go to the plant and the mother's the getaway driver and the father tries to assassinate Dr. Wilson through through the window with a rifle, but that doesn't work. <laughs> and then there's two cops try to blow it up and they, they get caught, but then of course the um implant in their heads explodes and they, they die right on the spot. But then you've got the general and another soldier, and they've got briefcases full of something. We don't know what it is. And when the soldiers shoot at them, they end up hitting the briefcases and they explode. And one soldier's like, oh, it must have been nitroglycerin in there. So I guess they were sabotaging the plant as well. Yeah, it's a little confusing, but I mean, it's fine. Yeah, and we don't really learn at the beginning what exactly is going on. Like the father offhandedly mentions it. Then Dr. Kellstrom mentions that David used to go to the observatory all the time until everything became quote-unquote hush-hush. And I'm like, what does that mean? And then finally, I, th- I think it was Kellstrom, or somebody shows David and Dr. Blake the um, the rocket ship. Yep. And that's what that's what the secret is they're building. So the theory that runs through the movie is that the aliens are coming down because they realize humans are about to embark on a journey into space and they want to stop that. So it's not like War of the Worlds where their planet's dying. Yeah, it's like reverse of um, First Contact with Star Trek. Right. It's like the reverse of, like, instead of the Vulcans coming down, breeding uh, humans for in warp speed, uh, these Martians are trying to stop them. Right, right, exactly. The ending where it shows, like, the uh, the ship coming down uh, down a second time. Yeah. Which shows you uh, the ship coming down a second time at the ending there. It's like, does it mean all the events are going to happen again? Exactly. Was did he have a precognitive dream, 
or or is like or is he caught in a in an endless nightmare loop? Hmm. You know that I always I I always liked that ending. I always thought that was cool because it left it so ambiguous that it left it up to your imagination. You know, and one thing about this film that I love are the sets that the way like the police station and even the uh, Doctor Wilson's lab and elements of the of the um, alien ship they're all oversized in this sort of kind of sky captain looking kind of way. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, they used a lot of low angles to make things look bigger or high angles like when when David's standing at the police desk the camera's looking down at him and the the place just looks huge and he looks so tiny. And I guess what they did was they had a lot of elongated structures with stark unadorned walls in the background just to make things they were taller than necessary. So all of that sort of adds up to this surrealism that it could have been a dream. You know, it could have been in David's mind. Yeah, it almost has like a, like a, like a Cabernet Caligari-like. Yes, exactly. Exactly. In fact, I think they, they, that's referenced in some of the research I did was um, there was some inspiration from Dr. Caligari. Now, all right, here's a question for you. So David goes to the police. They throw they throw him in a cell because they think he's nutso. And of course, the chief is obviously turned. And he, he I forget what he said. He had to go. He was going to go talk to the parents or something. And so he just basically tells the sergeant, "Lock the kid up until I come back." When did the chief get turned? He didn't go to the sand pit, as far as we saw, as you know, as the audience. No, I don't know. <laughs> I thought that was really uh, okay. I mean, may, obviously, it happened off camera. Safe for the sequel, right? <laughs> <laughs> but I thought it was really cool, though. Well, maybe, like, maybe the maybe the, maybe the audience isn't paying attention. Like, eh, whatever. Right. <laughs> or it was. I mean, it was definitely an unnerving scene. So I think it worked to be unnerving. But it was just like, okay, you really kind of have to explain that. But whatever. I mean, it could be one of those situations too where they said. They've established what happens and how a person gets taken over, so they don't need to show you everybody that's taken over, you know? Yeah, it's probably just a time uh, to save time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And plus, I think with police back then, they're always, always looked at as the authority figure, like somebody could be trusted and to have them revealed that this police chief, the one that the town probably looks up to as opposed, as, as opposed to today, uh, has turned. Right. Exactly. So then we got um, we had Helena Carter who played Doctor Patrick Patricia Blake, and she's the psychiatrist. She is hot. <laughs> she I thought she was so hot in this movie. And you know she lets David look at the back of her neck before he tells her a story because he wants to make sure that she's not taken over by the aliens. And it it was kind of cool because here you've got this kid who's very intelligent, obviously. And he's just struggling to wrap his brain around exactly what's going on here. But he just knows something's not right. Something's happened to his parents. I don't think he necessarily knew or figured out that they were possessed per se or, or, you know, under mind control. But there was definitely something not right. And I liked I liked where um, the parents do finally show up at the police station and it's clear to Dr. Blake that there's something wrong with them. And she did not want to send the kid back home with them because they probably obviously would have tossed him into the sandpit and he would have been controlled too. 
And so she basically makes up the story that he has signs of polio and they want to check him further and, you know, he can't leave the police station for now. So I think that the parents, because they're under control of the alien, didn't have enough of a wherewithal to sort of counteract, counterman that and say, well, he's our kid. And, you know, they're just kind of like, oh, okay. And then they leave. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the psychiatrist was hot. Was she the one they put on, on like, the, that cube in front of that uh, leader of the aliens? Yeah, they put her on the table because they were going to put the implant in her head, too. But they, first they have her face up, and then they turn her face down. And I'm like, nice. Yeah, yeah. Like what? Oh, and of course, in that scene, her dress is ripped right at the shoulder, so her shoulder's sticking out, and now all of a sudden, she's like this sex symbol in the movie. <laughs> yeah, I know. Like, it's like, oh, they're, they're turning her over. It's like they're cook, cooking a, a hamburger or something. Uh, yeah, no kidding. Well, they had to turn her over to the stick the implant in the back of her neck. So, yeah. <laughs> what I love, too, is that when her and David first get sucked into the sand pit, into the tunnels... You've got the giant Martian monster guys. One of them has to ca- pick up her, you know, pick up um, Dr. Blake and carry her away because you've got to have the monster carrying the woman in, in a 1950s sci-fi film. Okay. But I, I just think it's funny, though, how, how Dr. Kelston says, well, they're aliens from Mars would have created artificial humans called mutants, which doesn't make any sense at all in the, in the <laughs> definition of the word mutant. <laughs> yeah, like... But they didn't have enough money to do a couple another take. Like, right. oh, we're gonna move on. And then, then Stu Stu Kelston, Doctor Kelston, he he does this thing with the telescope when because after the police station scene, Doctor Blake takes David right away to to Stu, and that's where he gives them his theory and everything. And I, I thought it was cool that they set it up that that David was like into stars and he was a stargazer and all that, so he would go to the. It was an excuse for him to have a connection at the observatory, but then. You know, Dr. Kelston takes the telescope and lowers it, and he, they look at the first. They look at the rocket ship uh, that the that the it's made at the plant, and then they look at the sand pit and they see General Mayberry get sucked in. And it didn't it remind you of the scene in The Wolfman, where Larry Talbot adjusts his telescope and he's looking through the window of Glenn Conliffe and he's watching her. You know. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was just gonna say that. <laughs> it's like when a. Except one is actually research, and right, right. peeping Tom. <laughs> it makes you wonder how many of these uh, observatory guys are peeping Toms. Then <laughs> <laughs> later on, it was um, Dudley Moore and Ten. That's right. Yep, Dudley Moore. <laughs> There's a connection to this all. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, of course, the, the stock footage of the soldiers, because Stu calls the Colonel Fielding, and, and again, convinces him almost right away of what's going on, which I thought was kind of cool. That's, I thought that was highly unusual. A lot of times in these movies, you you know, somebody like a kid has a wild story like in The Blob and no adults believe them. But this oh, kind yeah. of spread fast. Oh, isn't there like a scene where like the general, the kid, and someone else are sitting up on some rooftop yeah. Kern- looking to binoculars? Yeah, Colonel Fielding, Stu, and um, David and another soldier, uh, I think it was Rinaldi, are sitting on, on David's roof and they're observing the <laughs> sand pit. Okay, like I just saw the shots. I was like, "How'd they get up there?" <laughs> that's, what, that's what I'm thinking. Well, yeah. It's like, why is that white? Why is that one guy down near the bond there clinging onto his life? Like, can I see the binoculars? Like, buddy, you should be more concerned about falling off the roof. <laughs> <No kidding. laughs> well, the parents weren't home, so they weren't going to get yelled at. <laughs> 
It's like, why, why are you up there? Will you, you clean the gutters? Please? Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> David, why are you up here? Can you clean the gutters? That's awesome. <laughs> it also made me think of the scene from The Burbs where, um, what's his name, was up on the roof. Um, oh, I can't think of his name now. I can see his face. <laughs> Ugh. Dern. Bruce Dern is up on the roof. Not Tom Hanks, but yeah, Bruce guy, Dern, right? and he's up on the roof with his rifle, yep. and then he ends up. Someone oh. yells and s- distracts him, and he falls off. <laughs> so yeah, so um, uh, of course Sergeant Rinaldi disobeys orders, the colonel's orders, and he goes to check out the sand pit up close and gets sucked into it. And the colonel sees this through the binoculars, but then more soldiers show up, and they they basically set up a post around the sand pit. And um, I thought th- this is where really things kind of got really, really good and kicking into high gear, although we did have a lot of stock footage every so often of the military. It wasn't like War of the Worlds where I guess they were able to, like we had talked about last time, they were able to get a local National Guard unit to let them use, you know, take footage of them doing stuff. This was actual real just stock footage that they got from somewhere. <laughs> it's kind of like no different than what Ed Wood did later on. Right, so. Exactly. But then Dr. Blake shows up, and she's got um, the device from the back of Kathy's neck, which I thought that was really cool. It was it was like this tiny little thin metallic object which looked like it had maybe like a transistor or, or something on either end of it, and one end was, was what had exploded. Mm-hmm. And for its time, to have something that small as a, you know, a piece of science fiction technology, I thought that was very prescient. I thought that was very you know, forward thinking on the part of the of the creators of the film. Yeah, definitely. I think so. You know, because you didn't really... See, I mean, I guess around that time they were developing transistors. I'm not sure exactly when the transistor came out, but I definitely think that, that they knew that the future was going to be smaller devices. So, okay, so the aliens have the small device. And it was cool because it not only controlled the host, but it could kill the host too, which I thought, again, was very disturbing when you first see it, especially if you were in the 1950s, just knowing that someone, an alien somewhere can just kill you remotely, you know, which has been done in a lot of films and TV. But I think this is the first time we've ever seen anything like that in a movie. Hello, this is Rod Barnett. I'm the host of The Bloody Pit, the podcast that examines films from across the decades. On The Bloody Pit... We have several ongoing series of shows within the show focused on specific things in genre cinema that I and my co-hosts find fascinating. There's a long-running series focused on Italian maestro Antonio Margheriti's films from the 1960s all the way up through 1990. There's an on-again, off-again series focused on 1970s science fiction films. There's an in-depth look at the Western movies that William Castle made before he struck out on his own and became the horror auteur that we know and love. A look at the classic Coffin Joe films from Brazil. And our long-term project to look at every universal horror film made in the 1940s. That's a long project, people. It's going to take us a long time. Sprinkled in amongst those are various other episodes focused on other stranger areas of cinema, like uh, Lucio Fulci, Dario Argento, and even some obscure British crime films from time to time. 
So join me and my rotating crew of co-hosts as we examine the stranger side of cinema through an exploitation lens. Except when we don't? Yeah, you never really know exactly what to expect on The Bloody Pit. So join me for The Bloody Pit. Hey, cats and kittens, do you remember the 50s jukeboxes, hot rods, malt shops, and sock hops? No, not really. Oh, well, do you remember that TV show Happy Days? You know, Fonzie and Richie and all like that? A, sit on it, etc.? Kind of. Then join us for These Days Are Ours, a Happy Days podcast where we watch every episode and give you the lowdown on what it all means. Find us at thesedaysareours.libsyn.com and follow us on Twitter at Fonzie Podcast. Be there or be square. You're sure you don't remember Sock Hops? Sorry, no. Okay, then. a spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Hear your host, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classics and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher, or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the HP Lovecraft Film Festival, Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and The Head of Rondo Hatton, only on Monster Kid Radio. Yeah, so I think this movie it's it's um very underrated because of that. There's just so many cool things in it that we hadn't seen before, especially visually and then the technology. Plus being very creepy too. Oh yeah, yeah. So the suits that the the Martian the mutants were wearing, they were created by this lady and she whipped them up literally like overnight and just that's why they look like they're, you know, almost like fur pajamas. And you can kind of see the zipper seam in the back. So you could, watching the movie, you could either determine, well, that's just an outfit that they wear, or that's their skin. <laughs> yeah, they almost look like onesies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I guess the director, um, speaking of onesies, uh, director Menzies, had, um, he created all of these different uh, like uh, storyboards and artwork of how the film was supposed to go. And for whatever reason... The, the pictures got lost and it wasn't like, you know, he had stored them in his computer. They didn't have them obviously back then. So the, the actual drawings of the storyboards and the, how the whole film, he had the whole film laid out in drawing form and it disappeared. All the, the pictures disappeared. And so they had to kind of scramble at the last minute and you know, they were, they really weren't doing too well in terms of getting things going and they still managed to get it in on time and under budget. Yeah, the, it- it was rushed into production, from what I remember, so they could be War of the Worlds. So. Right. Right, exactly. But it doesn't, it doesn't look rushed, though. No, it doesn't look rushed at all. I mean, yeah, you know, we did mention a couple of, you know, uh, story gaffes and, and whatnot. But overall, I think it look, it holds up to this day. Uh, I think it's thrilling, especially for, for young kids to watch it. I had my grandson watch it, and he was three, and he really enjoyed it, especially 
when it kicked into high gear when they were fighting the Martians. The budget apparently is, or reportedly is, was under $150,000. And it was produced independently by a guy named Edward L. Alperson Sr. And it was released through 20th Century Fox in May of 53. So I thought for $150,000, they made it look like uh, more than that. Yeah. One thing that was very effective um, in terms of subtext that we had mentioned at the beginning of the show, you know, how first of all, how many kids after seeing this film for the first time, especially back in the 50s, woke up the next day wondering if their parents were not what they seemed, you know? <laughs> that nightmarish element alone was, I thought, really helps the film. Would you agree? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I can only imagine. Right. <laughs> there were times when I thought my parents went, um they were when I woke up the next one too. So interesting, <laughs> and you know, it, <laughs> the height of the the communist scare. You know, the notion that seemingly ordinary people might be engaged in a secret conspiracy to subvert the workings of the everyday world. You know, that's one of those things that was out there, and the sci-fi films at the time capitalized on that. Oh yeah. You know, that year we also had It Came From Outer Space, which was actually only came out a few weeks later because this was released in May and that came out in June. And it kind of struck the same note. So, you know, in that movie, though, the aliens weren't just hostile. They could also make, or rather, transform themselves into, uh, to look like ordinary humans. The rape bribery, I believe. He wrote It Came From Outer Space, yep, yep. Oh, oh and the Martians were tall. They're... <laughs> They must have got like seven foot guys to play the mutants. Yeah, I mean, maybe this cast tall people, tall actors. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I just love the shot of when you're looking down the glass tube above the Martian operating table that they put Doctor Blake on, which that was a matte painting, and it just gave the set that you know that oversized look. I I just love the look of this movie. Yeah, this gave it that. Um... Like, it, it had a depth to itself. It wasn't just on a soundstage. Right, right, exactly. And, of course, you know, Sergeant Rinaldi was the one who d- defied orders and ran over to the sand pit and got sucked in. And the alien, the head, who's literally a head, <laughs> the head alien. I know. <laughs> I love the irony in that. Basically, he's speaking through him. And <laughs> this was a weird scene because he's speaking through Rinaldi, and then David asks him, you know, who is he or what is he or something like that. And I called him Headley in my notes. <laughs> so Rinaldi's referring to Headley in the third person, even though it's him talking, because he says, he is mankind developed to its ultimate intelligence. These are his slaves existing to do his will, just as you will. What are they doing up there? Meaning he was referring to the explosions up above. Well, first of all, if they can see that people are walking over the sandpit and suck them in. Why can't they see that the army's dropping bombs on the place? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, especially if Headley can see all this stuff, you should. Right. <laughs> she should <laughs> be able to see what's going on outside, Headley Lamar. <laughs> but then, and also, why are they asking what's going on? It, they're obviously explosions. They And, you know, the Martians are not unfamiliar with explosions you would think they would know that the humans are trying to you know root them out we're not we're not supposed to ask those questions (laughs) (laughs) so um you know and then the soldiers come in and they shoot the mutants and one of them anyways and they shoot him like a ton he goes down and they run past him and he gets back up again (laughs) 
<laughs> I thought that was like, oh, man, that's pretty scary, actually. But then one soldier was really cool. He had a Tommy gun, which I thought was awesome. Did you notice that? Yeah, yeah, that was, that was cool. Yeah, that was awesome. And then the colonel, of course, the colonel's plan is to blow the alien ship up and blow them back to Mars, which I thought was great. So, and then the whole end sequence where they're running, racing against time because the bomb's going to go off. The aliens seal off the tunnel because they have these giant guns that can not only seal the tunnels, but can also make new tunnels. So I guess you just reverse the polarity on it or something. And David gets the idea to use the gun because the, the soldiers get trapped in there. David gets the idea to use the gun to reopen the hole. And I just thought that was very exciting. I have to say, even in this viewing, I was on the edge of my seat, you know, trying to figure out what was going to happen next. And they managed to get up with seconds to spare. Although, did you notice it was kind of a cheat? Because every time they looked at the timer, it was back a little bit. <laughs> yeah. It's slightly annoying. I know. But I think, but I think it built the tension, too. So. It did. It did. It could. It, I think it just could have been edited a little bit better. So yeah. So then we they get out. The whole thing blows up, and then of course David has this weird fever flashback dream, and then it was all a dream. And then like we said before, he looks out the window, and the same exact ship is coming in again. And we're left to wonder: Is he caught in a nightmare loop, or did he have a premonition kind of dream? And if he had a premonition dream, that would be cool because he would know what to do next. You know, bypass the whole stupid police thing and go straight to, uh, straight to Stu, Doctor, you know, Doctor Kelson, and tell him the whole story. Yeah, and don't tell his dad about take a look over the hill. Right? Yeah, yeah, that's true too. I wouldn't even think of that. So, all in all, Joe, um, that's where the sequel comes. Until the sequel comes in, exactly. We're gonna make a sequel to this. I did like though how. I liked how it wasn't Mars wasn't dying. They were just basically going to come down and bitch slap the Earth for daring to go into outer space. Yeah, how dare we go into outer space? I know. <laughs> so, Joe, I think we um, we pretty much covered everything um, about Invaders from Mars. There was the remake that we mentioned, directed by Toby Hooper, starred Karen Black, Hunter Carson, and Timothy Bottoms, and um, the original film's child star, of course, uh, Jimmy Hunt, who played David, plays the police chief. I highly don't recommend seeing the remake. It's really an hour and a half that you'll never get back. <laughs> no. Well, it's almost felt like a comedy because it's got Lorraine Newman in it from Saturday Night Live. Oh, God, I forgot about that. Same voice from Saturday Night Live. like, David Gardner. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so, Joe, um, what are your final thoughts on Invaders from Mars from 1953, and would you recommend it to a younger audience? Yes, I think it's fantastic. For like a horror movie than a sci-fi movie, even though it's got sci-fi elements. Oh yeah, um, I highly recommend it. Excellent, excellent. I do too. I think if you haven't seen it already, we've spoiled the hell out of it, but uh, that shouldn't ruin your enjoyment of it. We kind of talked a little out of order too, which is good. So go and watch this if you haven't, and if you have seen it and you've got a younger person in your life, show them this movie, especially the fact that it's in color. Not to disparage black and white movies, because I highly think you should indoctrinate children with black and white films first like we were raised but um definitely yeah. show this to them i think they'll relate to david you know whether you're a boy or a girl and uh it's it's definitely creepy but not enough to give you nightmares or maybe some kids will give nightmares i definitely was disturbed by this film thanks for joining us joe 
And uh, we'll talk again on our next installment of Then Is Now's Classic Sci-Fi Films. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. I had a great time. Well, we hope you enjoyed this installment of our series on classic sci-fi films that you should see. I highly recommend watching Invaders from Mars if you haven't. And also, you need to show this to a young person in your life so that they can enjoy this fun film as well. If you want to send us your thoughts on this or any other Then Is Now episode, please email us at thenisnow42 at gmail.com. You can also join in on the conversation at our Facebook Then Is Now podcast group, so spread the word. Visit our website at havenpodcasts.com where you'll find all kinds of fun stuff, including our sister show, The East Meets the West, in which we discuss Shaw Brothers films and spaghetti westerns. Then Is Now Podcast is on YouTube now, so please visit our YouTube page at youtube.com slash user slash UncleDeath1 and hit the subscribe button. And please share that link with your friends and get them to subscribe as well. And if you enjoyed this episode, please go to wherever you download your podcast from and leave us a great review so that others can find the show. We hope you had fun learning about another classic sci-fi picture. Class dismissed. This now podcast is intended for entertainment, educational, and informational purposes only. Sounds, music, and clips played during this podcast are the property of their copyright holders. All original content is copyright Jupiter Media. Jupiter Media.